I want to speak to you uh, on the subject of character. We've talked about character being in the river, how it comes later, um, but it comes sooner than we think. It does not always have to end the way that we think, but character happens to us sooner than we think, so that by the time you're 15, 20 years old, you already have a character. In fact, by the time you're a child, you already have character traits. Proverbs says, even a child is known by his actions. So it doesn't matter how young a person is, we can see early signs or currents that start to develop in a person's life that pick up speed and velocity um, in mass volume as we go along and it starts to shape the course of our lives. The Continental Divide is a mountainous ridge that runs along top of the Rocky Mountains. It stretches from part of Canada and goes all the way down near Mexico, into Mexico actually. It's called the Continental Divide because whatever happens up there, whatever lands up there, moves in one of two directions. While it is really more towards the western part of North America, it, it literally divides the flow of water either east towards the Atlantic or west towards the Pacific. So whenever it rains or whenever snow melts, it falls according to the slope, either east towards the Atlantic or west towards the Pacific. Now it isn't quite that clear because once it starts to flow according to the slope of the land, the little rivers and tributaries because they follow the path of least resistance, they just cut back and forth. They whine for a while. It's not a straight slope into the ocean, as you know. But it means that whatever happens up there, sooner or later, flows in the direction of the land, either east or west. Character is a continental divide. Whatever happens in our life gets interpreted by the character to go one direction or the other. So that our lives are not only shaped by the events that happen to us, our lives actually shape the events that happen to us. Because whatever happens to us tends to flow according to the slope of our character. And then the way we interpret that reinforces that slope. And it moves either east or west. It moves either toward wisdom or it moves toward folly. I believe that character is one of the greatest fault lines in our country today. We're hearing a lot of conversation about how race and economics and political agenda are the things that are driving our nation. And I suspect that while these are true narratives, there is a narrative that is deeper still, and it has to do with character. Remember when Martin Luther King Jr. said, 
I dream of a day when my four children will be judged not according to the content of their, or the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. This may be that day, because when I look in the streets, I see people of the same ethnicity and color behaving in two different directions. It isn't the color of the skin. It's the content of the character. And character knows no boundaries. It affects people of every race, every ethnicity, every religion, every economic strata, every level of education. The divide is often, though not always, often a divide in character. Again, Martin Luther King Jr. said that the wall that divides our nation is neither black nor white, but runs down the heart of every human being. He's referring to character. I don't believe that the biggest fault line is an economic fault line. While it is true that people of certain income brackets tend to migrate or move in one direction or another, we all know people who are wealthy that we can trust and some that we cannot. We know people that are poor that we can trust and some that we cannot. At the end of the day, we are not shaped by the narrator of our, of our economics, but we are shaped by the narrative of our character. Everything sooner or later flows according to the land. We're hearing that the biggest divide in our country right now is a political agenda. But if you look to the top at the two most popular names that are running, they are sharply divided according to their political agenda, and yet there is an equal amount of suspicion on both sides of the agenda. What we're worried about is not so much the agenda, we're worried more about the character. Now, this doesn't mean that economics or ethnicity or political agenda is nothing. It just means it is not as deep as character and that whatever happens on the surface tends to flow in one direction or another because it gets interpreted and reinforced according to our character. So what we need in this country is not simply equal access and fair play. We ought to start there. But what we need is a reformation, no, scratch that, a transformation of character. Amen. That's what we need. Because ultimately, that is the direction every conversation runs. So wherever we see a deficiency in character, we should avoid it. We should not hire it. 
We should not elect it. We should not promote it. We should not date it. We should not be in partnership with it. Because ultimately, it isn't a straight fall, but everything flows according to the slope. You can counsel it, you can rehabilitate it, you can incarcerate it, or you can give it a bunch of chances. But every chance you give it will ultimately flow in the direction of character. So when we talk about character, we're talking about the bedrock of a person's desires and intentions and the way of seeing the world. But, but for so long, character has been this black box that we never went into because 20 years ago, when I was younger, um, we saw people talking about the importance of character and everybody, it seemed like everybody who talked about it failed in character. We had presidents talking about it and they failed miserably. We had coaches talking about it and they were covering up pedophilia. We had priests talking about it and they were the pedophiles. We had business leaders talking about it, and they were selling out and buying inside on Wall Street. So what happened 20 years ago was we sort of decided that while character is a really important issue, we probably better not get into it, because if we get into that black box, they're going to start looking at us. And nobody wants to live under that kind of scrutiny. But I'm wondering, you guys, right now, if the crisis in character that we see in our country today is not the rent come due from all of the negligence that we gave to this subject for the last 20 years. Is there anyone, is there anyone right now in our country who does not wish we could push restart on the character of a lot of things going on? Now, I know there are some of you that would interpret the events today in fundamentally different ways. Be that as it may, can I at least get you to agree that somewhere in your mix of understanding the greatest need for our country today is a problem with character. We have to talk about the slope of the land because character is the only way to predict what someone will do when you don't know what someone will do. So it raises the question of what exactly is character. Well, I went to Proverbs. Fancy that. And it did not disappoint. Proverbs must have given me 30 or 40 different characters. And, and I knew that was probably too many points to tell you this morning. So what I did was I, I culled all the characters and then I clustered these things together around a handful of character traits which seem to be really significant in the book of Proverbs. Other parts of the Bible, perhaps the numbers would change, but in Proverbs these seem to be really important character traits. And then I asked myself as I studied these traits, what is that trait responsible for? I mean, when you see that trait in somebody's life, what does it look like? How do you know, oh, that must be a character issue? One of those is humility. Humility comes 
not from talking ourselves down. Humility comes from wisdom. Wisdom allows us to put ourselves in the right proportion to everything and everyone else in the room. If a person is not humble, their problem is not simply that they're proud. The problem is that they are disproportionate to other people and other things in the room. And so they assume themselves to be better than average. So humility is not so much thinking less of ourselves, it's more thinking of ourselves less. Humility teaches us the fear of God, that there is someone in this world who is God and I am not him. Humility teaches me to be teachable, to listen, to absorb, to be pliable, it teaches me to submit to authority whenever authority or the law is in the room. It teaches me to respect someone other than myself, even someone who is very different from me. It teaches me to hold my tongue. Proverbs says, a fool shows his annoyance at once, but a wise person overlooks an insult. It teaches me to be patient and to suffer long when things are not going my way. It teaches me that I am not entitled to something. It teaches me how to be smart without telling everybody I'm smart. Proverbs says, a wise person keeps his knowledge to himself, but the fool blurts out, Folly. It teaches me how to let other people impress me. You know, it occurred to me some time ago that even though I try to encourage people, people don't always want to be just encouraged. I think people have an innate desire to impress other people. And so while we may be very encouraging individuals, boy, good job, good for you, we are maybe less adept to allowing people to impress us with who they are and what they can do. It means not saying, yep, yep, right, 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 I know, I know, I know, I know, every time someone is talking. And I wonder if over the last 20 years, while we neglected this, we have a generation of overconfident people of all ages, of all ages. People pick on people who are 20 and 30 years old when they talk about the, you know, the inflated self-importance. I'm better than average, but listen to me. Part of that is that, if you're in that generation, part of that is your generation. You probably do have the tendency to do that maybe, but part of it is, as parents, we needed you to be above average. And so we were constantly telling our friends that you were above average. And I wonder if it makes it harder for humility 
to come into our bones. Keep moving, Steve. Honesty. Honesty comes from accountability. Honesty allows me to tell myself the truth about myself and to tell other people the truth. And so when I'm honest, my word is consistent or parallel to the information. I don't fabricate or invent details. I don't embellish or exaggerate. I am fair and just in my dealings. Proverbs says, Honest scales and balances belong to the Lord. All the weights in the bag are of his making. When I am honest, that's what allows me to pay my debts, all of them, on time. It allows me to say what I'll do and then follow through and do it. Proverbs says, like clouds and wind with no rain is a person who boasts of gifts he doesn't give. So when I am honest, I am loyal to people even when the chips are down. When I'm honest, you can tell it in my speech. I speak in straightforward, simple terms. I say less instead of more. You can trust me with a secret and I admit when I'm wrong. But when I struggle at honesty, I will give long and winding answers. I will excuse myself. I will admit to only the things you can prove. And so I will confess by the inch and never by the foot. I always follow the evidence. I never lead it. I never say more than you expect me to say in my mea culpa or confession. Harvey McKay, a writer some years ago, talked about how he hires people. He said, I take them to the golf course and I watch them to see if they cheat. Well, everyone knows that fishermen like golfers all cheat. He said, I'll watch a guy get on the tee and hit the ball with a slight fade. It'll land just a foot or two right of the white out-of-bounds markers. He said, one man will walk up and look at that line and he will spend the next 15 minutes explaining to me why if you really look at it quite like this, I'm not really out of bounds. How because of the slope of the grass or the cut of the lawn or another reason or because the club didn't do what it was supposed to do, that ball's not really out of bounds and so I am not going to add a stroke. He said, there are others who will look at the white lines and they will say, you see that out-of-bounds marker? Yeah, well, I ain't doing that. I ain't adding a stroke. And they'll take their shot. He said, if I had to hire him, I'd hire the second guy. Pause, note to self, you don't have to hire either one, you know. But he said the second is better than the first because there are liars and then there are liars. And the only liar you can trust is one who's honest with you. They know the rules. So when they cheat, you won't be surprised. You'll see it coming. They told you. There is that kind of duplicity right now that is just all over the landscape. Third, 
industry. When I was younger, it was bred into me, you guys, that to get better, to master something requires hard work and it requires perseverance in the face of opposition. But as I got older, I started to notice that I had friends who were not raised in the same way. They knew how to do things easy. They attached themselves to some overactive person and they lived off of that other person's success. They found shortcuts to virtually everything. They did not follow through. When opposition came, they were the first to let go. Proverbs says, when I show industry, I work for what I get. I am guided by structures and by discipline. I'm self-motivated. I'm self-controlled. I pay attention to the details. I seek to master it. Good enough is not good enough. I seek to become the best in my field, and I show courage in the face of conflict. Fourth, empathy. Empathy is not the capacity to feel for somebody else. It's the capacity to feel with somebody else. Empathy makes it possible for me to show compassion, for me to show mercy. Empathy is why we give people second chances. It teaches us to be kind and gentle. It teaches us to be generous. When I cannot manufacture empathy, I become judgmental, short, sharp, critical, impatient. So what you've just heard me say is, huh, is that where you see the deficiency in these character traits, we should steer clear. If you are in relationships with someone, either through marriage or family, you cannot steer clear. If you're like me, and you have small children when we were younger, you're always, tr always trying to figure out you know, is this a big thing or not? What's going on? Is this a problem or not? And sometimes it helps to know that while kids can get into all kinds of trouble, when we start to see patterns and the patterns start to move toward a deficiency in humility that allows them to open up to other people and see themselves right, or the deficiency in honesty that causes them to hide things and to be clandestine and to give double or duplicitous answers, or a deficiency in industry that causes them to always take the easy way out, or the deficiency in empathy that makes them cold or distant or insensitive when there is suffering in the room, it's time to lean in. 
Now the question then is, what do I do if I'm looking at myself and I'm starting to see these deficiencies? I believe that like the Continental Divide, there are watershed moments. I believe that most of the time, we cannot wake up and see these things because they're upon us so quickly. But there are watershed moments that God allows to come into our lives. And when they happen, they are there to point out the slope of the land. And I also believe that when these things happen in my life, I am wired, it seems, intrinsically to avoid the hard scrutiny. I just cannot see it. The land can be sloped to the west, and I will always say, oh, that's a temporary setback. It's really sloped to the east. It's really headed toward west. I cannot see it objectively. So I believe it is essential for me to do a couple of things. One of those is to daily give God permission to tell me the truth. Now, he doesn't need it. I understand that. But you understand by giving God permission to tell me the truth, I am acting complicitly with the wisdom of God. I am saying, God, I am slanted, I am prejudiced, and I know I am, and I will lie to myself all day long. Tell me the truth. Even if it hurts, tell me the truth. Put me in situations where my character suddenly becomes evident. When I am rejected or when I am passed over or when I am criticized or when I apply and I do not get the job. When I fail or when somebody steps up and tells me off. Before I lack humility. <laughs> tell me the truth. I'm encouraged by this. Don't be afraid of it. I'll tell you why. Because God is a gentle surgeon. He never, ever, ever wounds who he does not intend to heal. He will never point to something in your life that he doesn't intend to make better. But we must be complicit with the Holy Spirit and say on a daily basis, speak to me and tell me the truth and I will do everything in my power to obey it. It's sloped and I know it, but I will obey as much as I can. The other thing that I need in my life constantly are other people. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, more faithful than the kisses of an enemy. And yet me, I'll always prefer a kiss an enemy. So I need truth tellers. And I need to give them permission to tell me the truth. I'm looking for people who love me but are not impressed with me. Please listen. The older you get, the smarter you get, the more successful you get, and the richer you get, the scarier you get. And your friends will stop telling you the truth because it's too risky. They could lose their job. They could lose their money. They could lose their friendship. There's too much at stake. 
and they will not tell you the truth until you give them repeated permission. Tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. Are you still tracking? There's this powerful verse in um, uh, Proverbs that occurs two times. And it speaks to us who find ourselves in the river headed in the wrong direction. It's Proverbs 22.3 and 27.12, I think. And it goes something like this. The wise man sees danger and takes refuge. But the fool keeps going and suffers the consequences. Somewhere along the banks of the River Niagara, there are big yellow signs that say absolutely no watercraft in the river after this point. Now, why do you suppose they put those signs there? <laughs> because anything after that point, the current is too strong. After the first service, a man came up, a retired man. He said, boy, this reminds me of my last act in the Coast Guard. We went out into the River Niagara and had to save three guys who went out and bought a brand new fiberglass boat. They got it partway down the river and the thing shattered. They went flying overboard. One of them hung onto a tree. The other one was hanging onto a boat that was lodged against a tree, but none of them could get out of the river because the current was too strong. Friend of his turned and said, you want to go save three young saps from going over the falls? He said they were less than a mile from that precipitous drop, all wearing life jackets, all of them, stuck in the current. A wise person sees danger coming and takes refuge. The fool ignores the symptoms or the watershed moments and they just keep on going. I believe that the only way to bend the river is to start with small practices that happen early on. Let me say it differently. Every one of us are living today in consequences of decisions made two and three years ago. So if we want to bend the river, it takes more than a simple prayer that says, Oh God, and I mean this, get me in a better life. We're going to have to bend it gradually, slowly. It will take time. It will be difficult. But once it is bent, it will last. So how do we cooperate with the Holy Spirit to start bending the river in our life so that two or three years from now, we will be in a different place? That's why I'm down here. I have to come up the river. I know you sit in the back. You hate this, don't you? It's like I sit back here for a reason. You stay out of my turf. I ain't going any further. I'm calling it ABC, you guys. It's pretty simple advice. A means audit. It means to audit the voices that are coming into my life. Remember, Proverbs says that our life does not follow impulses. It follows voices. Before you even have an impulse, 
before you are even consciously aware of it, there are voices training the way that you think. Now, I know, I know some of you think you are immune to that. And you were programmed to think even that. We are trained what to see and what to feel about it. And then right on cue, when something happens in our life, that's the way we see it and that's how we interpret it, just like we were trained to interpret it. And so if we want to change the current, we have to change the voices that are speaking to us that interpret our lives. Because we interpret life the way we are taught to interpret life. We have a value system exactly like they trained us to have a value system. So if you want to revolt against the culture, you will have to listen to different voices. For some of you, that means different forms of entertainment. Because we can trace your value system, even if you can't, to the kinds of things you feasted on entertainment-wise. True to form, you think exactly like they taught you to think about those things. You will have to change some forms of entertainment. You may have to change the kinds of music that you listen to. You may have to change the blogs that you follow. You may have to change the podcasts that you listen to and the talk show hosts. Wait a minute, nobody under 40 watches those guys. If you're old, you'll have to change the voices that you listen to. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, no, wait a minute. I can listen to those things, but I don't agree with those things. Come on, man, you're smarter than that, aren't you? You know that just because you don't agree with something doesn't mean it can't influence you. It's bumping you. It just isn't turning you. But give it time, and you will go exactly in the same direction. That's enough of that. B, boundaries. Just like we have to re-examine the voices, we have to redraw the boundaries. Because the truth is, most of us in this room right now are swallowing things that 10 years ago we never would have swallowed. Because the truth is, we don't have a theology and then act. We act. And then we write a theology. We follow the desires of our heart. Theology comes later. Now, I know some of you theologues are ready to revolt. This is true. This is true. You believe what you need to believe to do what you want to do. So we'll have to start redrawing the boundaries back. Henry Cloud has a great line. 
In his book on one life, he says, follow the misery and make a line. Look at people whose lives you know are going in the wrong direction and study them for a couple of months and then back up and draw a line and say, I'm not going there. And I got to warn you, it will probably be a more conservative line than you're comfortable with, but you understand that's part of the problem. That's why the river is bent. All right, Steve, move on. C, circles, company. Ultimately, we become like the company we keep because the people that we hang around, our closest friends, they teach us, don't they, subtly, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. They laugh at certain things and they deride others. And without pronouncing it wrong, I'll stop doing the others and start doing the one. They train me how to think, what to value, who to follow, what to listen to, what to wear, what's cool, when I'm in and when I'm not liked or not liked. This is friends. But if you're like me, you don't sit down with a list and start naming people that you're going to like because it's artificial. You can't fake a friendship. Hi, I don't really like you, but you're good for me. That just doesn't work. So what I recommend you do is to change the pools where you find your friends and then let your friend maker, <laughs> let it do what it always does. You will have a natural affinity towards some people and not others. I do. But if you change the pool, You've changed the friend. I believe that we live in a day where the culture is fragile. I believe the nation is talking about economics, about race, about politics, about education. But I believe the real issue is character. I see the same darkness that everyone else in our country sees right now. And in my worst moments, I am as pessimistic as you are. But I see something else. I see all over our country God turning on a light. Not all at once. It doesn't expose every dark corner. But God is setting individuals on fire, church, People are beginning to see that this is a day where character will make a true difference. And they will establish themselves, not by rising to power and taking everything over, but by living holy, peaceful lives wherever God has placed them. So whatever you see when you look at our country right now, however cynical or pessimistic you may, may, may be, know also that something else is happening. God is creating a remnant of people with character. And as that number grows, 
our righteousness will shine like the noonday sun, straight from the book of Psalms. My question to you this morning is whether you're in it. I hope you've not simplified this whole thing and said to yourself, am I a person of character or am I not? Well, yes, I am. I'm all set. Ask somebody who knows you. Really. Ask them. Who's not afraid of you? Ask them. And then if God has put his finger on one of these things this morning and said, you know, for you, man, it's, it's humility. Or maybe for you, it's, it's a lack of industry. Whatever God maybe has put his finger on, maybe you'll have the nerve this morning to own it. But so that you might find it, 